Taking a look at what's happening in Afghanistan now, U.S. President Joe Biden says contingency plans are being developed to adjust the timetable if the August 31st deadline to end the evacuations runs out. Have been boarding buses under the cover of darkness. Once at the airport gates in Kabul, fewer than 50 yards separate the final Taliban checkpoint and U.S. forces. The Taliban controls who gets into the airport and who does not. Let's check in now with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. What is the latest with what's happening with the United States and the evacuations? Yeah, so look, you're right uh, in that the president uh, did ask for a contingency plan uh, to be organized between both the Pentagon and the State Department. Obviously, that is something that is kind of sparking new confusion over what the eventual plan is and if August 31st is an actual firm deadline here, considering the Taliban has said to uh, America, be out on August 31st, otherwise there could be consequences. With that, the airlifts are continuing at a much more rapid pace than we saw earlier in the week. Uh, The White House put a note out this morning saying in a 24-hour period by 3 a.m. Eastern, 19,000 people had been uh, evacuated. That used 42 military flights, uh, 48 coalition flights, uh, and that since August 14th, uh, it's roughly 82 or 83,000 people have been removed from the country. Uh, That's not everyone, but it is a much faster pace and gets this kind of eventual August 31st goal in line. And what are your thoughts on what's happening on the ground with we're seeing other countries, uh, Poland saying that it has ended its evacuation operations, other countries that are appear to be at this point pulling back. And and that has to do with the fact that there is a security threat that is in and around the uh, exterior perimeter of the uh, of the airport in Kabul. This is from uh, kind of a combination of forces that include the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, ISIS-K. There is a worry amongst uh, American officials that a a potential threat could be carried out, which is why they are trying to ramp this up as quickly as possible. But at the same time, this threat is also kind of weighing into the uh, into this kind of plea from G7 leaders to the United States saying, look, we may not be able to get everybody out in time. We may need to stay longer. Uh, but then again, that threat puts more troops at risk. So this really is becoming a difficult position for not only the Biden administration, but for leaders around the world who understand that they may have citizens, residents uh, or Afghan allies trapped that aren't able to get out. And is there any talk or consideration of Canada's role and, and how Canada can support the evacuations as well? S- so we know uh, that that uh, that there were obviously conversations at the G7, and Canada is continuing to send uh, uh, military planes over. We don't know, or at least uh, uh, Washington hasn't been given kind of uh, uh, kind of a direct timeline as to when Canada could potentially pull out of this. But given the fact that there is a concerted effort here amongst the G7 nations to work with the United States, which it says is working with its allies to ensure that this wraps up in a timely fashion. Uh, each each country is essentially doing everything that they can, understanding that time is running out, and that time is running out up against a very credible threat here from either the Taliban or from ISIS-K that a consequence could be looming. What's worth remembering here, Jill, is that America itself needs to get its assets out after people are removed. That could also include destroying parts of its military base, which is why they need to wrap up these evacuations as quickly as possible to avoid running over that August 31st deadline. Right, because I guess what's the the most fearful could be that we get to August 31st, and if there are still people that are waiting to be moved out, we're going to see some absolutely horrific things unfold. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the U.S. Embassy in, in uh, Kabul that's operating out of the airport sent a note out yesterday to people that if they were not kind of res- uh, getting to the airport as quickly as possible and, and evacuated at a certain point in time, they will be left behind. Now, the, the embassy pulled back and it retracted that email about 30 minutes later, but it does show that there is some serious concern here that if they go beyond August 31st, it's an open question as to what is going to happen. Does the Taliban carry out some kind of incident, uh, uh, you know, and, and get a little more aggressive? more so than what we've seen outside of the airport. Does ISIS-K, an enemy of the Taliban, but also anti-America, uh, do they potentially carry out something, whether it's in Afghanistan or whether it's somewhere else uh, in the world? These are things that are under consideration right now, which is why time is of the essence. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. But thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you. Let's take a look at where the federal leaders are and what people are talking about with the federal election. Amanda Connolly is joining us now, Global News political journalist. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What are we looking at today as far as where the leaders are and what's happening with the federal election? Yeah, well, this has certainly been an interesting week. We're really seeing kind of the leaders and the parties kind of get out of that initial posturing and, and positioning on the campaign trail, getting into a bit more of the promises and what they want to lay out for Canadians, and as well as how they're responding to some of the issues that continue to dog the campaign trail. Key among those, I think, is, is housing affordability this week. We know that so many Canadians across the country during the pandemic have really had a tough time um, either finding new housing, whether it's buying a home, renting, uh, finding more space to work from home and for their families, the kids who are now going to school at home as well. Um, it, it's been a really challenging time, and we're seeing that really dominating a lot um, of the conversation from the leaders, really their their plans to both um, what they say will try to both kind of increase the supply end of the conversation as well as uh, hopefully reduce some of the barriers that uh, they've identified as kind of the key pressing issues for so many Canadians. Do we get a better or do we have a, a better idea? I know the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, has talked about this. I think he, he's going to be talking more today. Uh, we've actually seen what the plans are in the platforms of the New Democrats and the Conservatives. Do we get a sense of just how different the different ideas are when it comes to tackling affordability? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're getting a much clearer picture of that right now. We did see the Liberals announce their housing plan yesterday. This really centered around, I guess you could call it kind of a three-part pledge, one of them around uh, building more housing, a significant number of new housing units, as well as things that will, um, I guess, measures that will that will uh, kind of change the, the culture and the climate where people are buying and selling houses in. Things like banning blind bidding, like enshrining a right to having a home inspection. We've seen a lot of people waiving those during the pandemic because they are so desperate to have kind of any sort of foot up they can get in the market. Uh, the Conservatives, of course, as well, have been really focusing on the building aspect here, that, that kind of disconnect between supply and demand. They, they want to build a million new homes within three years. They also were the first to come out with a promise to put a two-year moratorium on foreign buyers uh, buying property in the country. The Liberals echoed that in their platform yesterday as well, or their, their proposal yesterday as well. And really, we're hearing kind of a mixed review on this particular aspect as to whether it would really work, but certainly something that has frequently been identified as a concern in the housing market by some. And so whether it would work, I guess we're going to have to wait to see. And certainly you're right, uh, looking at what's happening with housing here in BC. I know it's a huge issue in Ontario, other parts of the country as well. Do you think that's something then we're going to see more focus on or will we continue talking about some of the other issues as well? What's happening in Afghanistan and some of the other top issues? Absolutely. Well, certainly in, in that context of, of affordability, it's really housing is key to that, but there are so many other other parts of that. And really it's that issue, I think, of 
um, the cost of living right now, and particularly the disconnect between the cost of living for people who own a home and people who are really struggling to get into the market. So that kind of generational divide between older and younger Canadians in a lot of ways. Um, in terms of other issues though, that are that are happening and kind of dogging the campaign trail, Afghanistan really is key among those right now, particularly because there are so many concerns about how well we are doing at getting people out of that country and also the future of the evacuation efforts writ large. We heard uh, Justin Trudeau yesterday saying that following a G7 leaders meeting that Canada would be willing to stay in Afghanistan, keep military assets on the ground there to try and facilitate more people being uh, taken out of the country who are fleeing, of course, the Taliban takeover there. We'd heard similar comments from the UK leader as well, uh, Boris Johnson, leading up to that meeting. But of course, we, we're hearing um, quite a bit of, of resistance here from the US. President Joe Biden has really kind of hardened his position here in terms of meeting that August 31st deadline to pull out US troops from Afghanistan. He said that he is not willing to entertain keeping them on the ground any longer. And of course, US troops right now are really the, the key kind of the key force holding down the Kabul airport and really in control of the air traffic system in, in Kabul right now. So um, that without really their support there, it, it makes it a much more thorny question. But of course, there there is a significant public um, uh, interest by the public in, in the situation and, and really a, uh, a concern among so many Canadians about whether we can do more and, and what, what will happen to the people in Afghanistan who are, are had been so hopeful for their country's future and now, of course, are, are fleeing the Taliban. So certainly a lot more questions to be answered there, but we're looking for more information on that today around 10 a.m. Eastern time when we get a briefing from the ministers who are responsible for those files. All right. So we will be watching and paying close attention to what is happening on the campaign trail today. Amanda, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, a busy day yesterday when we were talking about news when it comes to COVID-19, what the back to school picture is going to look like, the requirements for masks to be worn in classrooms, grades 4 to 12, as well, younger students will be strongly encouraged to wear masks. And starting today, the mask mandate in BC comes back into effect. That is the requirement to wear masks anywhere indoors. Let's bring in Sarah Professor and Mathematical Biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. What are your thoughts first on the indoor mask mandate coming back in? You know, with the rising cases, and we're seeing them uh, pretty much across the province now, uh, this is the right call. um, We've known for a while that there is some risk of transmission, even if you are vaccinated, you could get the virus and pass it along. And so just it's a way to in crowded environments when we have as many cases as we do right now, it's just a way to tamp down and get control of the situation. Do you think we're talking enough as well about mask protocol and whether and the type of masks people are wearing Mm. and making sure as well that people are wearing them correctly? Yeah, you know, that is a, a good point because that we've got a lot of information and instructions about masks early on, but kind of not lately. So it, it, we may, that is a good point. We should rem, um, make sure, you know, wash your masks regularly and also make sure that they have the kind of two or even three layers. The other thing you can do, of course, is if you're not sure, double mask if you're going into a particularly risky environment. 
All right. Uh, that is good advice. Uh, you talked a bit about the spread and being able to still spread the virus, even if you are vaccinated. Uh, some of the numbers that came out yesterday as well, 30% of cases and 20% of hospitalizations were un or under vaccinated. Are you concerned that we are seeing an increase in people say that have had one shot or partially vaccinated still ending up in hospital? Yeah, you know, the risk of being in hospital if you're fully vaccinated is um, much lower, estimates from 10 to 30 times lower. Um, So that is great news. It's really great protection. For those that are partially vaccinated, we know it depends on when you got vaccinated. If you got vaccinated recently, you almost have no protection and it rises over time. But this is a really good time if you were hemming and hawing about getting a second vaccine and you're eligible go on in because what we're trying to do is really protect as much of our community as possible. And that is with the um, vaccine passport. That really is also the goal is just to, um, since we're seeing most of our cases in hospital among the unvaccinated, just to protect that community. What are your thoughts on the back to school plan as far as masking will be required for students grades four and up? There's not going to be a mandate on vaccinations for students or teachers or staff members in schools. What are your thoughts on that? You know, Jill, I think BC has gone an interesting route on this. They have stopped short of really mandating vaccines except for healthcare workers. And so it, it leaves a choice um, in, up, uh, in people's minds. They can make a choice. But if they want to socialize, if they want to engage in kind of the niceties of life, going out to eat or going to a bar or something like that, then they have to get vaccinated. And, you know, I think along those lines, the policy is saying the essentials of life, healthcare, groceries, um, you can still do. And you can keep your job. And for kids, they, they, um, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been pretty clear. She treats school as a pretty essential service. And so I think it's, an, it's for that that she um, is not mandating um, vaccines for school children. Uh, what about for, for staff members, though? Because I know there were a lot of questions about that yesterday, that if we're talking about the mandate, if it's something that's needed in long-term care, where we're talking about people who are vulnerable, why not mm-hmm. mandate it when we're talking about people under the age of 12 who are also vulnerable because they can't get the vaccine? Right. Yeah, I, I, I think um, if right now, I think they're not seeing the types, the, the high, they're not seeing yet an increase in rates of hospitalization among the um, young. And so I think if they start to see that, we might see an unrolling of a mandate for under 12. But um, so far, the, um, they haven't been very hard hit. Now, I think every single child that's hard hit is, a, is one more child that we want to protect. So if I were a teacher, I'm double vaccinated and all of my colleagues that I know that are teachers are double vaccinated. I think it's, you know, I would find it very hard as a teacher personally to take that risk from on my students' lives. So I do hope and call for all teachers to get vaccinated. And the risk to to yourself as well. It's interesting when we're talking about people in those professions, it is about the risk to students, but the personal risk as well. Absolutely. Yes. But, you know, as a teacher, I have to say, I I think most of us, our first um, concern is that we provide a, a good learning environment for our students. That's what we're trained to do. And they can't do that if they're sick. They can't learn. 
what are your thoughts? And Dr. Henry touched on this yesterday, uh, going into the fall into what is te- uh, typically the respir- respiratory uh, flu cold season, the Delta variant, people moving back indoors. Do we have modeling numbers or what are your thoughts on now going into another fall where we are? Yeah, so our, our projections from the modeling team um, have shown a really steep rise. Now, we're starting to see the bend in um, the interior because of the recent um, actions that have been taken in the interior, but it's still growing. And so that means that we're, we expect to see increasing case numbers as we hit as school opens. Um, we're not unlikely to bend the curve enough before then. All right. Uh, Professor Otto, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. We are taking a look at what's happening with the federal election. And joining us now is Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. O'Toole, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. want to start by talking about health care. It has been a topic that has been brought up uh, several times so far during the campaign. A lot of talk about private versus public health care. How do you see yourself as the conservative leader fixing the crisis we have in Canadian health care? Well, I put out a solution to secure health care on day two of this campaign, an inje- injection of $60 billion into our public universal system over the next decade. It will be an historic investment, giving provinces the ability to fill some of the gaps from COVID help our, our front lines who are fatigued. I'm also today talking about our mental health package, which will be on top of uh, those commitments. We're also doing uh, some significant investments on treatment beds for the opioids crisis. I announced that in in uh, the GVR just the other day. So this is a priority for me, and it's been disappointing to see Mr. Trudeau actually be caught importing American-style attacks, misleading media, uh, um, basically caught lying about my record. I've said universal uh, access to our public system is paramount. They, they edited that out to try and mislead Canadians. And I think after six years of this approach with Mr. Trudeau, we need a change. When we talk about spending, though, and taking a look at how Canada spends on health care, we do spend an enormous amount when you look at it per capita. We still have some of the longest waits. We have some of the, we still have a lot of the issues, especially if you compare the Canadian system to the 28 other countries that have universal health care. So how does spending more money fix it? Well, this is where I've said I want to be a partner with the provinces. So what can the federal government do? I can give them predictable rising funding so that they can plan to bring wait times down and to improve service for the people in their province. I trust the premiers. I don't think whether it's Premier Horgan or whether it's uh, Premier Higgs in New Brunswick, I don't think the changes they're going to make are, are meant to hurt their citizens. I trust the premiers wanting to get wait times down, get more choice, ensure that there's free universal access. Um, and that's why I've said we've got a partner. I'm going to give a, a large once-in-a-generation investment. And Mr. Trudeau is now attacking premiers, uh, uh, claiming that he's going to cut funding, close clinics in the middle of a pandemic. So I think we have a federation where we have to work together. And especially with some of the mental health and addiction aspects, which have been made worse from COVID, I've been putting some specific focus on those, which are very important to me. I've worked on mental health issues as a, as a veterans advocate before I became a politician. So, Jill, the well-being of, of the country, the recovery both economically and the social fabric is very important to me and our conservative team in this election.
Do you think there's a, a misunderstanding then, or or when we look at the healthcare system, because anybody that has spent any time in it, whether personally or with a loved one, we do have access to both universal healthcare, we have access to private healthcare as well. Uh, in the province of BC, though, we've had our government suing the operator of a private clinic, the same government where members of that government have used those clinics. So how do we get past that and get to a place where we know that universal healthcare is protected, but like you said, people do have choice and have access. Well, this is why I think the the misleading attacks by Mr. Trudeau actually try and distract from the fact that we have to make sure that universal public access is there. But if we can get wait times down and if provinces can come up with ways of, of helping people faster and more effectively offering more choice, why wouldn't why wouldn't we support that? Here's here's a great example. During the pandemic, we needed to get vaccinations out very quickly. And a lot of pharma- pharmacy chains, private sector, were able to deploy these vaccines and distribute them in many provinces a lot faster than the public health resources would. Isn't that good? We got our vaccination rates up quite quickly, even though Mr. Trudeau was four months late in getting the vaccines. So this is the type of conversation I want to have with with the provinces. We need to make sure that free public universal access is there, but we all want wait times to come down. And what I'm trying to do is is be a partner with $60 billion over the next decade, increasing funding. But I'm also going to try and, and, and work with the provinces if they're trying to improve the system. You've also said that you would like to or you would plan to balance the budget in 10 years. That means you would have to curb spending somewhere. Where does that, where do those cuts come in? Well, there's no cuts, Jill, but we we have to wind down the emergency measures of COVID. Mr. Mr. Trudeau still has in place uh, emergency response benefits that were set up at the first wave of this pandemic when we were worried about an entire economic collapse and full closures. Well, in, in really the last 10 months, we've seen sectors of the economy have record profits. And some of those companies uh, qualifying for taxpayers' money and, and people being able to keep getting the serve, even though there's shortage of, of workers in many parts of the economy. That, that's wrong. That's meaning we're, we're not performing. We're, we're overspending and we're actually not being as productive as we could be. So we have our jobs boost plan. We're going to change from Mr. Trudeau's programs to to not have people working we're going to transition that into everyone working in all sectors and incentivize employers to hire people who've been chronically unemployed we're going to pay 50 percent of the new hire salary for six months as part of our job search we've got to get the country working again and that will let us get the programs down get our budget back into balance over a period of time but we're going to help people both with health care and mental health but even stopping the the freebies, for lack of a better word, that's not going to get back to a place where it's going to be balanced, is it? Wouldn't there still need to be curbing of spending elsewhere? Well, Mr. Trudeau has had no focus as prime minister. He's actually driven away $160 billion of investment before COVID, Jill. He was running $30 billion plus deficits in good economic times. I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to make Canada a place for investment and and talent. We're going to grow the economy and stop this excessive uh, spending of of Mr. Trudeau. As I said, he ran up $100 billion in debt before COVID-19, and that is unsustainable. So we're going to try and make sure we get back to balance over a time frame that is fair, have a recovery that includes everyone, including people in the resource sector, a softwood lumber deal, 
uh, reopening markets that have been declining in the Indo-Pacific and other things that Mr. Trudeau has, has fumbled diplomatically. We need serious leadership and a plan. And that's why we launched Canada's recovery plan on the first full day of the campaign. I put directly to, to Canadians what I think we need to do get, to get Canada back on its feet. Uh, we only have about 30 seconds left. I just wanted to ask you, BC has now become a province that is going to require vaccine certificates for non-essential things like restaurants, concerts, sporting events. Do you support vaccine certificates for those types of events? We've always said we will respect what the province has put in place to keep the economy open and balance uh, public health concerns. That has to be what we do. Make sure we use vaccines, the most important tool. They're safe and effective. Use rapid testing where we can, masking, distancing. And if the provinces who have the hard decisions of making restriction decisions want to use other measures to keep people safe, we will respect that. I want to partner with provinces, not pick fights with them like Mr. Trudeau does. All right. To Aaron O'Toole, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. Well, we now know there will be a requirement for students in grades 4 to 12 to wear a mask while in classrooms. That's when schools resume next month. That has been one of the most significant changes to the back-to-school plan as the fourth wave of COVID-19 continues to hit this province. All staff and visitors in K-12 will also be required to wear masks while indoors. Well, let's check in with Jordan Tinney, who is the superintendent of the Surrey School District. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Good morning. Good morning. Do you think these rules and these mandates go far enough to keeping students and staff members safe? You know, I think you need to look at the rules and, you know, the school rules in context of the whole community package and the provincial package. Um, obviously, you know, the vaccine piece is the one people are focusing on now. Um, the masks is, is where we were in the spring and many of the other protocols are where we are in the spring. But when you look at the vaccine piece, you know, there just seems to be a substantial requirement in the community to get vaccinated. You know, everything from getting your morning coffee or lunch snack to being on post-secondary campuses and attending sporting events, mooting. So, you know, if you want to live a normal social life, you, you appear to need to get vaccinated. So that's going to impact schools uh, for sure. So uh, I think it will have an impact and I think it'll make a difference. Uh, so it, it sounds like it's almost uh, like a, a de facto mandate in that while there isn't one specifically a vaccine mandate for staff and employees and teachers in schools, uh, it, it sounds like you're saying because of the, the vaccine certificate for other activities, it'll, it'll probably turn out to be a very high number? I, I think so. I mean, when you when you look at it, I, I you, know, you know, we all have our stories. I, was, I literally was having my morning coffee and I was talking with them about, OK, do I need a vaccine to get my morning coffee? Um, I am double vaccinated, so that's a good thing. But uh, I think the, the bar is is really quite high. So I think you'll see people hopefully in increasing numbers get vaccinated and and that'll translate. You know, what happens in our schools is a reflection of what happens in our community. We know that. So uh, we also know that in the spring, I mean, I can only speak specifically for Surrey, when uh, our teachers, our uh, support staff uh, were first in line for vaccines, we saw just such a dramatic drop off of cases in our schools. So it is a game changer. Uh, masks are important. They're they're one other protocol that we want them all to be in place. And so I think you will see a difference. Uh, how are things going as far as ventilation and, and that, given that I know in Surrey there is a large number of portables and that was an issue that was raised several times last year? 
Yeah, it, it, that's the other piece right now. You know, we, our systems are well maintained and our systems are upgraded. And so we're looking at everything right now to say, you know, is there any way we can do better around ventilation? And, uh, you know, do we have the right filters? But uh, we, we have monitor systems in place, maintenance systems in place. But you'll, you'll continue to hear lots of comments about, um, about ventilation. Does more need to be done, though? Because it seems to be it's different from district to district as far as has money been spent on air filtration systems or has other work been done to improve ventilation? I think you can always do more. I mean, you know, we we have a number of schools that will not have MRF 13 filters, for example, and we're looking at do we need to upgrade those and what is the cost associated and where do we find the funding to do that? So, uh, you know, to your question, can we do more? Of course we can. Uh, there was also talk, uh, I know one of the questions asked yesterday was about cohorts, and certainly there were concerns raised last year about the efficacy of cohorts. So what are your thoughts on kids coming back and uh, kind of mingling together and being together in that school setting? Well, I think we, you know, we've all been on this learning journey, and I think what we learned about cohorts was they were put in place in the in the first regard for um, for contact tracing. But now, what we know is is COVID really is about you and your best friend or your very close contact. So. Um, it's good news that cohorts are, are removed because that really gives us lots more flexibility at the school to return to life really as normal. Um, and so I think that's great. Um, I think we'll see when the notifications come in the fall, um, you know, just what that looks like for individuals. And, and of course, that's where vaccinations may come in place again, because if you're not vaccinated um, and there isn't an exposure in school, you may be required to self-isolate as opposed to if you are vaccinated, um, you might just be asked to self-monitor, which is what we all do anyway. So uh, we'll look for the clarity on the notifications to come, but that'll be important as well. In scenarios like that, if people are not vaccinated and have to self-isolate, will there be options or ways for them to move to remote learning? Yeah, I imagine so, but we're, we're going to look today. Uh, there are regional uh, town halls with the health officers today um, for us, and, and we're looking for those answers around the notifications. It'll certainly be different from last year because, of, of course, you're faced uh, with this situation now. If in, you know, Depending on individual circumstances, if vaccines are available and someone chooses not to get vaccinated and then they're self-isolated, let's say it's a staff member, um, then, you know, what are the implications for us as an employer as opposed to uh, those people who are vaccinated and they know they can remain at work or students can remain at school? So it, it will, what will remain to be seen for us is how many notifications will there be? I mean, certainly there will be COVID will descend upon our schools in the fall. I'm, I'm almost certain. And so when it does, um, you know, what is the extent to which people are asked to self-isolate as opposed to uh, self-monitor? Mm. Uh, and one other question about masks, just because it is so different depending on what province you're looking at, uh, that uh, we know that at kindergarten to grade three in BC, students will be urged to wear masks or it's recommended, it's not mandatory. Some other provinces, uh, I think Ontario, it's mandatory starting in grade one. Uh, others are leaving it up to the individual boards. Are you concerned at all that we're going to have these grades K to where it's not mandatory? You know, I think people got used to the mandate in, in June, and, and personally, I didn't receive a lot of feedback. Um, people make their individual choices from kindergarten to grade three, but I know, that, you know, from my experience uh, looking at schools, the mask, you know, mask wearing was very high. So, um, you know, I think people are used to masks. I think they've become the norm. And, um, you know, you, you go out today and everyone's got one in their pocket or on their face. So uh, it really hasn't been a problem for us. Uh, what it, You talked a bit about the um, 
the notifications. And like you said, there's going to be cases of COVID in schools. That's inevitable given where we're at with the Delta variant and going back. Uh, what do you tell parents then as far as easing their concerns if parents are concerned about sending their kids back into that environment? I think what we say to parents is, you know, we've been on this journey since, uh, what, all of us since March 2020. We've learned an enormous amount around um, what COVID does, how it travels, how it's transmitted. We know that the plans we had in place uh, did a lot to mitigate uh, transmission in schools. And so we've learned more. We believe schools are safe places. Um, I think for parents, probably look for fewer notifications this fall. Uh, you know, my sense is we're, we're headed from a place of a, you know, a, a, a massive pandemic to a place of managing this um, as a communicable disease moving forward. So fewer notifications and only where you absolutely need to change your behavior. So that'll be a transition from parents as well, because some people will want complete transparency and will want to know anything about every case. And other people, uh, you know, to be honest, are, are really tired of the multiple notifications and will welcome getting back to life as normal. All right. We will leave it there for today. Jordan Tinney, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. You take care. You too. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, Canadian politicians say the acceleration is underway. That is the accelerated speed of getting people out of Afghanistan. But there are still many concerns that people will be left behind. Let's bring in Kimberly Motley, an international human rights and civil rights attorney. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, How concerned are you that people are going to be left behind? I mean, I'm extraordinarily concerned. I'm concerned for the Canadian government, the U.S. government, frankly, every government, that people are definitely going to be left behind. Um, there are people that are coming, that are showing up to the airport outside the gates, literally with their foreign passports from the U.S., U.K., and Canada, and they are not even being let in through the gate. That is happening in real time right now. Uh, will that change or do you think can anything be done to change that well i mean i think the first thing that needs to be done is that date the arbitrary date that unfortunately was set by the biden administration of august 31st that has to be changed i have i don't understand why that was the date that was set um that is simply not enough time to make sure that our foreign citizens are out of Afghanistan. And frankly, a lot of the Afghans that we that many governments have supported, including, you know, women and children, they also who have visas to other countries, that is also not enough time for them also to leave the country. Uh, we are, understand or we heard earlier today that Poland uh, has is one of the countries that has ended uh, its evacuations from Afghanistan. Are there fears that more countries will do that even before the August 31st deadline? I mean, absolutely, that's a concern. I mean, uh, there's rumors going around that the evacuations will end, you know, in a couple of days. And, you know, you have to keep in mind that there's thousands and thousands of troops that are also on the ground. So they also need to be evacuated. So it's unclear on whether the August 31st date is as sort of a drop dead date for evacuations to end for everybody. And that includes the troops or is that date simply for those that are outside of the airport um, that that date applies to. And when you talk about that date and the, the fact that it's an arbitrary date, is the concern that if the evacuations continue past that, it's going to lead to even more violence? Or or what reason have you been hearing or seeing for that date? Well, I mean, President Biden set that date. 
for, frankly, no good reason. I mean, the whole way that this our withdrawal of Afghanistan has been handled has been an abysmal mess. And frankly, it's a human rights catastrophe. It didn't make sense. And I think what's important for people to know is that the way in which we withdrew our troops from Afghanistan, it did not have to look like this. And I think there's sort of this misinformation that's being sent out that's saying that no matter what, when we evacuated, this is what the withdrawal would look like. That is absolutely not true. The way that this withdrawal happened, it was extremely immediate. It was too fast. It wasn't planned. I mean, the government, our U.S. government, they didn't even inform the U.S.-funded program that they knew Americans were working at in Afghanistan, that they were going to do that. And thus you have this desperate scramble to try to get, you know, American citizens out of Afghanistan. And frankly, there's the people that are making that happen, that are allowing or helping American citizens come within the gates of, of the airport are still many Afghan people are oh. helping with that. All right, Kimberly, we're right out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. It is time that we make sense of the markets with Lori Pinkowski, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact her team 604-695-LORI or visit the website at pinkowski.ca. Good morning to you. Good morning. That's a fantastic intro song that you had on there. Gloria, one of my favorites. I know. I thought that that should always be the song leading into this segment. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So markets are uh, higher uh, by about 1% to 2% over the past week. I, you know, last time when I was uh, speaking to Simi, we were kind of dealing with a, a minor pullback, a minor uh, by only a few days and only a few percent. So, so what we've seen, uh, since then is that, uh, you know, there was a decline of greater than 1% of retail sales for July in both the U.S. and Canada, as well as slowing growth in the manufacturing and services sector. And so this is a situation where kind of bad news is a little bit of good news. Uh, it means that they're going to continue a stimulus longer. At least that's what the market believes and they won't increase interest rates anytime soon. So this is what we've been seeing. Also with COVID numbers, of course, um, you know, that continues to move higher. Uh, but then and, you know, we're seeing increased, you know, mask mandates like we are here in B.C. and so on. And I think what the market uh, believes is, yeah, we're going to see some softness due to the Delta variant, uh, but it's not going to um, really hurt economic growth the way that we saw, of course, last year. All right. So things pointing to a strong finish or things improving. Yeah, definitely. You know, we've seen um, key commodities such as oil and copper really bounced off the recent lows. So that was a, a positive sign there. And, you know, what we've been saying is, is that, you know, when you come out of a recession, uh, you know, as you're in an economic recovery, it can be uh, a little bit bumpy, right? And my thought is, my opinion is, is that, uh, you know, we want to stay invested. We want to be in equities into next year, at least, if not longer. Uh, usually when a market recovers out of something like this or a recession, uh, you definitely want to uh, stay, have a higher equity exposure, 
and uh, and things usually improve, right? Not just over months, but years. And so that's what's important to us. Again, we always have a plan B if things change, right? You know, we raise cash, we protect our clients in the portfolios. But overall, again, knowing what I know, doing this for 20 years, uh, you know, I think there is an opportunity for investors over the long term here. And uh, and so it's, it's hard not to get sucked in when markets are a little volatile, right? And get a little worried, uh, but use that as an opportunity, right? There's some good sectors, some good holdings that may have Come down when the market comes down, and that's your opportunity to add them to your portfolio or your financial advisor uh, should be on top of that and looking at that for you. All right. What about the federal election and what kind of an impact is that having when we're talking about investors and the markets? Yeah, you know, the Canadian election has somewhat of an impact, but not much. Um, you know, when we're looking at markets, markets uh, move quite a bit when uh, when the U.S. election is is happening. So in Canada, of course, what we're seeing uh, is that liberals are, are losing their gain. Uh, conservatives are moving up in the polls. Uh, for for businesses is probably positive. Uh, it looks like we won't get a majority government either, though. Uh, and of course, that's what the liberals were in were looking for, obviously. And um, you know, our economy is is already benefiting right now from significant government spending, high vaccination rates, and record levels of household savings over the past year. Rem- remember, Canadians have a high debt level still. And so the question is, is, you know, how long can all of this go on for is the question I always get in terms of government debt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and increase in, increasing the deficit. And I think there's a, um, you know, a lot of opinions out there that uh, spending can't go on forever. And so I think that uh, in terms of this election, I think a lot of people will be focused on a, a few different areas, um, you know, such as, you know, balancing the budget to the housing market, uh, raising taxes or corporate taxes, foreign investment. I think all of those are important to us as Canadians. And it will be interesting to see how this plays out uh, uh, when we finally get to the polls. All right. And it's interesting you mentioned that as well, because we've heard or at least seen the platforms released from two of the parties, not from the Liberals. And when you talk about things like foreign investment, corporate taxes, I would imagine that's what people, what investors are really looking at. Exactly. That that would be the focus on for the markets, um, you know, because, again, uh, foreign investment uh, in Canada is is important to a certain degree. And what is that fine line? Right. And if we increase taxes too much, then they may not uh, they may not come here. Um, but again, everybody wants their fair share. Right. For foreign companies. And I get that. And so we'll be watching that closely. And that might be more company specific too, right? It might not be the overall markets come down just because uh, someone gets into power. And so just keep that in mind uh, when looking at this election. And I think the the most important thing here is is that we all get out to vote, right? We all have uh, uh, the opportunity to, to vote. So we should get out and do that. All right. That is good advice for sure. Let's also talk a little bit about RESPs. I know you were talking about this last week or you were talking with Simi about financial lessons, teaching the kids, the grandkids uh, about this. Yeah, exactly. You know, what's important is, is you know, our, our ESPs and, and saving for education. I mean, it's one of the, you know, the best gifts you can give to your children or grandchildren, in my opinion. And and a lot of people start RESPs a little later in life, right? But it really all you do is, you know, need a social insurance number and you can get one started. So as a parent or, or even a grandparent, uh, you can contribute to an RESP. And, and that's so important because, again, this is a place where the government actually gives you 
free money. And that, that doesn't happen very often, does it? Right. So, um, you know, the max amount that you can contribute to get the max uh, grant is twenty five hundred per year. You get a five hundred dollar grant. So that's like a free 20 percent return. Remember that an RESP has its advantages as well because uh, the money in there is invested and it grows tax-free over time. And that tax-free growth really adds up to a lot by the time that child or grandchild is preparing to go to post-secondary. And I think what a lot of people are worried about is if a child doesn't go to school, right? right? And and we see that. And what I would say is that, again, if you have more than one child, you should be on a family plan. So what this means is that if one child doesn't go to school, the other child uh, has the ability to to use that money in the RESP. So you're a little safer then. And there are ways to get money out. Let's just say all your kids don't go to school. Um, but again, there might be tax consequences on that. So again, an RESP is, is a great program that we have here in Canada to save money for education. You are getting free money from, from the government and you're getting tax-free growth. And again, just be careful of where you're opening up an RESP. Uh, I've mentioned this quite a bit on air. RESP is with a normal investment firm, you know, financial advisor is a great, great thing to do. But there are some companies that focus just on RESPs. And that kind of way to invest in an RESP may not be ideal. Uh, there's a lot of kind of rules uh, around those types of RESPs um, that really you, you don't want to be, you, you don't want to be involved with, uh, in my opinion, anyway. And so again, opening up a normal RESP with an investment institution as your financial advisor, they can do that for you as long as that that child has a social insurance number, uh, you're good to go. Hmm. So I guess I'm hearing from you there that they're not all created equal. So do some homework on that. Exactly. You want to make sure that uh, you're just in a regular RESP and you're able to invest in all sorts of different things. You can remember in an RESP, you can buy GICs, you can buy stocks, you can buy bonds, you can buy funds if you need. So there's uh, lots of uh, various investments that uh, you can invest in. Uh, and then there's other types of RESPs where you're much more limited and withdrawals. And if you miss a contribution and all that kind of stuff can be a real problem. So, and I've, I've met many people who have got sucked into some of those and they have some serious problems later on with their RESP. So again, make sure you're in the right type of RESP. Uh, I can't say that enough. And uh, and like I said, uh, education is one of the best uh, gifts you can give, uh, in my opinion. And again, uh, it's great to get one started for your child or grandchild. And I think you touched on this, but just in case somebody is concerned, one of the the maybe hesitance of, of this would be, like you said, if your child doesn't go to school, worried that that money will disappear. But like you, like you also touched on there, it, it, that does, that's not necessarily the case. No, no, it's definitely not the case. Um, you know, the grant they, they tend to take back. Uh, and then there could be tax on the growth that you earned within there. So, so the benefits of, of, of what happened while you had the RESP aren't really there as much as they would be if your child does go to school. And again, a, fam, a family plan versus a single uh, plan is much, uh, much better for, for anybody that has more than one child. So always think about that. I've seen a lot of people not, or advisors not recommend that. They keep on doing single single plans for every uh, child that's born. So yeah, so there definitely is a way to get your money out. Uh, if children don't go to school, again, uh, there could be a tax situation there, but still the, the money doesn't just evaporate. So, so again, if you're in the right RESP plan. So so talk to a financial advisor, uh, open up an RESP. Kids are all going back to school and uh, it's, it's that time to really think about it. All right. Good advice, Lori. Great to chat with you. Thank you so much. You as well. Have a great day. You too.